So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series over the last several weeks now looking together at the magisterial ethical teaching that Jesus gives to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And up to this point, we've been kind of looking at a lot of the introductory matters, and we spent some time over the last couple weeks looking at the first 16 or 17 verses, which actually provide for us something of the foundation, kind of the preface of the ethical vision that Jesus is going to give us in these verses. But this morning, we're going to jump right into the topics that he begins to explore. And the first topic that Jesus addresses is something that I think for a lot of us is familiar. It is something we know in our own hearts and lives. It is something that you may have even experienced this morning on the way to church. And that is the topic of anger. Last night, I was, uh, uh, it was around, I don't know, 9 o'clock or so, and as happens on most evenings at around 9 o'clock or so, um, I start getting a little bit on edge with my children because I know that I have to get up very early the next day, and so my daughters will tell you, I'm sure, that uh, my worst moments all week long happen on Saturday night, and last night was no exception. Uh, I told the girls, hey, you got to get ready for bed. And I felt like I asked them four, five, 10, 12 times to get ready for bed. It probably was only once or twice. And it seemed like they just weren't moving. And so I got a little bit more agitated. Then I started to get internally angry. And then I found myself thinking, come on, kids, get in bed. I have to get up early tomorrow morning and preach about anger. But this is one of those subjects, it's one of those issues that I think most of us are familiar with. We know something of anger in our own hearts and lives. In fact, uh, recently, actually just in uh, the beginning of this year, January, February, issue of the Atlantic Monthly had this cover story, and the title of the cover story was, Why Are We So Angry? And I spent some time reading through a couple of the articles in uh, the magazine, and it was interesting because they point out that in 1977, there was a very well-known psychologist who did a rather extensive study on the issue of anger. And it was some of the most uh, formative, uh, some of the, the first work that psychologists began doing on the issue of anger and anger management and the effects of anger and the damage of anger and the healthiness of anger and all of this sort of thing. And he points out that by 1992, the topic of anger had become something of a cottage industry for psychologists. And at that time, in 1992, there were over 25,000 studies published on anger seems like it's a very prominent issue in our lives. And he also argues in the article that anger has taken on a whole new role in American culture and society. In fact, uh, when uh, President Trump was on the campaign trail, one of the things that he said that he was intentionally appealing to was the latent anger within the American population. And he goes on in this article to say that back in as early as 2013, if you were to ask how you felt about your political opponents, about almost half of Americans would say that they felt anger toward their political opponents. But by uh, 2016, that number had risen to almost 70% of Americans didn't just feel like they differed ideologically or politically from those across the aisle, rather they felt white-hot anger towards them. 
And it wasn't simply towards their leaders as was demonstrated for, for many of us as we've seen on Facebook. It is, it is anger that is lashed out against those who support po politicians uh, other than the ones we personally support. So anger is a very real issue. It's a very pertinent issue, I think, in our lives. And in the text that we're looking at this morning, Jesus discusses to us his vision of an ethical life and its relationship to the issue of anger. So what I want to do this morning is I, I want us to first kind of just note something of the context that Jesus gives us his instruction about anger in. Uh, secondly, we're going to see the claim that Jesus makes. It's actually a radical, somewhat of a shocking claim about anger. And then finally, we're just going to raise some questions to Jesus about what he's saying about anger. Okay, does that sound like a good plan? So I want you to note the context. Look at what it says back in chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, I tell you, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and who teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says greatness in the kingdom of heaven is associated with obedience to the things that Jesus has taught us. Jesus says those who listen and who attend to his own voice, to his ethical teaching, these will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But those who, who minimize his teaching, who ignore it, will be called least. And then he says this, for I tell you that in, unless your righteousness, <laughs> this is a shocking claim. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about just how shocking this would have been to the hearers of Jesus and, the, and, and his original hearers when he first spoke these words, because for those original hearers, the most religiously committed, the most zealous, the most Bible-believing people of the day were the Pharisees. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness goes far beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is doing here is he's contrasting two different kinds of righteousness. There's the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and then there's the righteousness of the, of the followers of Jesus. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is actually drawing out this stark contrast between two kinds of righteousness, which immediately puts us on notice with this. You know, sometimes we think that there are two categories of people in the world. There are the good ones, and then there are the bad ones. There's the religious and the irreligious. There are the liberals and the conservatives. You know, we are a two-party system in the U.S. There are Democrats and Republicans, red staters and blue staters. We've got two parties. But Jesus, in our text, doesn't contrast the right from the left. He doesn't contrast the good from the bad. Instead, Jesus contrasts two different kinds of religious practice and observance. 
And this contrast that he draws out, they're not between the religious and the irreligious people. It's a contrast between two ways of seeking to follow God. Which means this, you can be religiously committed. You can be, you can from the outside look like you are seeking to follow God and yet you can have it all wrong. And so Jesus draws out this contrast between two different kinds of religion and he carries the contrast through each of the main blocks of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And again, what I want you to note that he's contrasting is righteousness. And so I want to talk for a minute just about this word righteousness. Because Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds, it goes beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's important for you to understand what he means by righteousness. Now, it's not a word that gains much traction in our day. When you hear the word righteous, what comes to your mind? Maybe if you're a child of the 80s like me, it's an adjective to describe, you know, a really great burrito. That burrito was righteous, you know, or good surf or something. It's kind of like valley surfer talk from the 80s. Or if you've grown up within an evangelical subculture, what you can hear is the righteousness of Christ. And what might come to your mind is the great exchange where on the cross, Jesus Christ took our sin so that he could impute to us his righteousness so that we might be justified before the face of God. And so in this sense, righteousness is not so much an adjective as it is a gift from God to all who believe in Jesus Christ. But Jesus is not actually using the word righteous in that sense in this text because here it's an attribute that we ourselves can possess. That's why he says, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And this word righteous is actually in, in the original language, uh, was translated from a Hebrew word in the Old Testament that was a covenantal word. It was a relationship word. When the children of Israel were being faithful to the covenant that they had been brought into by God, God would name them righteous. In other words, when you enter into a covenantal relationship, that is a relationship where you willingly obligate yourself to someone else for their good. And so within ancient Israel, the ancient Israelites entered into a covenant relationship with God where they willingly took upon themselves obligation toward God and toward their neighbor and toward the land and toward the plants and toward the animals. They felt a sense of obligation. And so in ancient Israel, to be a righteous person, it meant that you were faithful to your obligations that were yours through the covenant. And so, for example, just as, as one simple example, if uh, your neighbor had an ox and, and their ox wandered off and got caught in a ditch and you were walking down the road and you saw the neighbor's oxen in a ditch, it would be your obligation to actually go and recover the ox from the ditch to rescue the ox. It wasn't that you were doing your neighbor a favor. You were not acting uh, charitably toward them. It's not like you could do this or you didn't have to do this. Rather, it was your obligation to do that. You had an obligation toward your neighbor, and those who are faithful to their obligations in the Old Testament were called righteous. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, it wasn't simply human beings who could be called, 
who could be called righteous and who could be faithful to their obligations to the covenant, God himself is named righteous because God enters into a covenant relationship with his people where, get this, God willingly obligates himself to Israel for their good. And he makes all these promises to them. He heaps them down. He loads them down with promises. And essentially, when God is acting faithful to his promises, which of course is what God does, God is acting righteous. And so my point that I want you to see from this is that righteousness is a relational term. To be righteous in the biblical sense of the word is to act faithfully in your obligations toward your neighbor and toward God. And so what Jesus is going to begin to do is spell out in the, in, the, in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount what true faithfulness toward your neighbor actually looks like. And what he's going to show us here is that his vision The obligations that you and I have for our neighbor go way beyond what the religious teachers thought it did. And so in the next uh, several verses, Jesus is going to draw out six what you could call antitheses. He draws out six contrasts between what he says, what they said, and what he is saying. What it was said in the Old Testament and what those Old Testament teachers taught and what Jesus is teaching. And the first contrast that he draws out deals with the issue of anger. And so notice what he says in verse 21. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. Did you hear what Jesus just said? He said, you heard it was said of old. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable. They'll be accountable to judgment, to the council, which is, of course, what the Old Testament said. But what Jesus does is he goes below the surface action of murder to the intention that lies beneath murder, which is anger. And so Jesus is drawing out actually a parallel between murder and anger. Where murder is the fruit, anger is the root. In other words, anger always grows out of a seed that was planted of of anger and bitterness that goes down deep. And so Jesus says to be truly faithful to your brother and your sister, to, to be truly, to, to truly live as a covenantally faithful person. It involves not just the action of murder and refraining from that, it involves refraining from the attitude and the intention of anger. But what kind of anger is Jesus speaking of here? Jesus says, you have heard it was said of old, you shall not murder, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother. So is Jesus here forbidding all kinds of anger? Anybody in the house been angry in the last 24 hours? Just show of hands. The rest of you are lying. (laughs) Or you're not listening. Both are bad, and so if if somebody next to you didn't raise their hand, just go ahead and slap them and say you're a liar. Go ahead. I'm just... (laughs) 
Now, of course, the sources of our own anger are varied and many. Sometimes you might be uh, nailing something to the wall and you hit your thumb. And the, the sharp pain, you know, evokes anger. Uh, sometimes you're driving on the freeway and some uh, driver cuts you off and you're, you're, you're all of a sudden filled with fear and out of fear you get angry. Uh, sometimes your computer doesn't load quick enough and you get angry. But there's all sorts of things that are the source of anger. Sometimes in a good sort of way, we can become angry against injustice. There was a great Jewish uh, philosopher who once said, that the, the, the alternative or the, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. It's when you look at the state of the world and you just don't care, it doesn't move you. There is a time, there is a place of looking at injustice and human trafficking and the abuse of men and women and children and you can look at what's happening in the world and you can become angry. There, there is righteous anger. But what is Jesus speaking of here that is something of the equivalent or the root of murder? I think what Jesus is talking about in our text is he's talking about anger that is directed at a particular person. Because notice what he says. He's not just talking about angry, anger in general or anger about the injustice of the world or anger because you hit your, your, your thumb with a hammer or whatever. Jesus in our text is talking about anger that is directed toward, he says, your brother. Now, of course, your brother can be expanded. I think he, he notes your brother because the people that oftentimes are the recipients of our most intense anger and contempt are often the people closest to us. Isn't that true? And so what Jesus is telling us in our text is he's talking to us about an anger that's directed toward a person near us and close to us. Maybe it's our brother or sister or parents or our husband or our wife or our children. Or maybe it's a colleague at work or your employer. But your anger is directed against a name and a face, and you are angry. The word angry in our text actually is in the present, uh, uh, it's a present participle, which means to continue kind of in a state of anger. A little bit later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul commands us to not allow the sun to go down on our anger. And what he is advising there is to not allow yourself to remain in a settled state of anger against a name and a face. He is saying, deal with your anger before you go to bed. And so what Jesus is addressing here is a kind of settled anger that persists. It keeps going on. You're nursing a grudge. You're feeling bitter. How could they? How could, you know, and then you lay in bed and you're just seething and you have this loop in your head about all of the injustices and wrongs and how could they and what's wrong with them and you're getting angry. And this is what Jesus is exposing. This is what Jesus is addressing. And this anger often comes to surface in a variety of different ways. And Jesus alludes to these different ways in which it can surface. Sometimes it can just be that settled, nursed anger, bitterness, and resentment that allows you to continue on in a cold war with a spouse 
or with a parent or with a neighbor, just having their wrongs stockpiled in the back for just in case the opportunity arises, you can draw upon one of those missiles and launch it at them. Sometimes it is, it is an anger that erupts in verbal abuse. And Jesus says it leads to insult. He said, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Then he goes on and he moves from, from, from insults to calling somebody you fool. He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And what Jesus is speaking of here in some sense is a kind of building anger that begins to grow inside, then it erupts in verbal abuse. You're yelling at them. You're calling them names. You're stupid. You're an idiot. How could you? What's wrong with you? And then it leads ultimately to contempt, which is what that word you fool is all about. It is to look at somebody with disdain and it is to look at them with contempt and say, you are just an idiot. You don't even deserve for me to talk to you anymore. And this is what Jesus is warning us against. Now notice Jesus presses it further because he attaches to this description of anger the threat of ultimate judgment. And I think this is probably what should trouble us the most. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, but I say uh, to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be what? Liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable, he says, to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And with each of these three phrases, Jesus is putting us on notice that you will be held accountable to God for your settled anger, for your contempt, and for your disdain. Jesus is putting us on notice. He's saying in the Old Testament, you heard, yeah, whoever murders will be held accountable and they'll be drawn up and they'll be exposed and they will be condemned. And Jesus says, that's what you know is the condemnation over those who commit murder. But he says, if you go below the surface and you find in yourself settled anger, nursed anger, those deep wounds that come out of wounded pride or whatever that erupt in verbal abuse and contempt, Jesus says, you will also be held accountable to God. Now, let's ask Jesus some questions, shall we? (laughs) The, The first question I think is fair for us to raise is, Jesus, aren't you being just a little bit extreme here? Is this even realistic? I mean, who among us in the room has not found ourselves at different times in our life, whether towards mom and dad or towards your wife or your husband or your kids or your neighbors or whatever, finding yourself internally seething with anger? Anybody in the house known that experience at all? Anybody here ever found yourself raising your voice and verbally abusing your Love people who you love the most. You launch into them with the meanest words. And they are feeling hurt. And the reason why they are hurt is because you are trying to hurt them. That is what you are intending to do. And typically you're trying to hurt them because they hurt you. 
And because they hurt you, you want to make them pay. You want to make them feel the pain that you yourself know. And so you launch into them. And yet Jesus is threatening us here. Jesus is saying, look, you will not be released. You are held accountable for your angry hearts and your angry words and your contempt. And again, we ask, well, isn't that just extreme? I mean, it's, it's human to be angry. And isn't it unhealthy to try to suppress anger? Isn't this what all the psychologists have told us? And isn't it there's simply just a physiological response that happens in the brain? I mean, have you heard, I remember uh, several months ago, I was in, actually a couple of years ago, I was in a class on the emotional health of ministers. And would you believe it that pastors need those kind of classes? But I remember we were being uh, instructed by uh, a very well-known uh, therapist in association with Fuller Seminary, where I'm doing my doctor ministry. And she was talking to us about something that she called amygdala, amygdala hijacking. And she says, we have this uh, little piece in our brain called the amygdala, which it can kind of explode and go off the Richter, and it can hijack the rest of your brain. So you're in a reasonable, rational discussion, and then all of a sudden your wife or your husband or your kid says something or mom and dad say something, and it triggers something inside of you. And all of a sudden she says, in that moment your amygdala has been, it has hijacked you. And now it is in control, and it has taken over you, and you are no longer interested in reason. You are not interested in a rational discussion. Now you're interested in hurting them. And so isn't that just part of our own physiology? And what about suppression of anger? I mean, shouldn't we release it? What is Jesus, what is Jesus actually calling us to do? I mean, what, what, what is he on about here? Several years ago, I, uh, when I was, uh, uh, I actually wasn't a youth pastor yet. I was just the assistant to the youth pastor, which is something akin to the assistant to the regional manager. And... Uh, this was back, I don't know, I was probably 19 years old, and we used to take these trips with my youth group down to Mexico to a deaf orphanage. And while we were down there, we'd do various projects, you know, there's these different service projects, and it was always kind of difficult and challenging, uh, but this year when we went down, it was the most difficult, the most challenging assignment yet. They had asked us to clean out the septic tank. Now, the septic tank is not what you might know. I might think, yeah, we can, I'll drive the truck over and hook the thing up and let it just suck it out into the tank. But that wasn't the septic tank they had. It, instead, what they had done is they had dug a big ditch underneath an outhouse. And so cleaning out the septic tank involved shoveling out the ditch. And so I remember the uh, leader of the deaf orphanage was describing to us this job. He said, I need about four or five volunteers. And he looked at our group and he said, who wants to volunteer for this? And so the youth pastor looked over at me and because I'm the assistant to the regional manager or the youth pastor, I had to raise my hand. I said, I'll do it. And my youth pastor, he said, I'll do it. And then there was a, a poor kid from Chile who was a foreign exchange student who didn't understand English. And <laughs> he said, I'll do it. He saw the youth pastor doing it. And... So we went, and uh, I can remember, I, I had this visceral reaction walking up to this 
uh, septic tank with my shovel. And they gave us these little paper-thin masks and these little latex gloves. They said, you'll be fine, you know? And so we walked over there, and uh, I can remember walking up, and I remember the smell of the thing just hit me in the face. It was almost like a physical, material thing just smacked me. And I, and I looked down in there, and I just thought, I'm going to pass out, and I'm going to fall in here, and this is going to be the end of me. I'm going to die there, you know? And, and uh, but we started, you know, shoveling the thing, and after about two or three hours, the strangest thing happened. Our bodies actually started to adjust to the stench. And about three and a half hours later, uh, the chow bell rang, and you can imagine how hungry we were. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so we we all start walking down to the chow hall, and I remember all the students were down in front of the chow hall, and we start walking down there, and all of a sudden, uh, there was like a downwind or something from us, and they started having this disgusted look on their faces, and we're like, what is it? What is it? They said, it's you! You stink! You know? (laughs) But the craziest thing happened. We couldn't smell it anymore because we had been immersed in it for so long. And it is, it is very possible that you have been immersed in your anger and in your contempt and in your disdain for so long. Everyone around you knows how much you stink, but you can't see it anymore. And yet Jesus knows that words... It's not like the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Words are incredibly painful and they are wounding. And God looks out at his creation and he loves humanity. He doesn't want to see us tear each other apart with our disdain, with our coldness, with our passive aggression, with our mean-spirited words, and with our contempt. God hates it when the creation that he loves is being fractured and torn apart by the stench of our anger that is oftentimes shot through with our own self-righteousness, our own inability to see our own stupidity and failures and the ways in which we have contributed to things, the blindness that we have to our own folly, and yet we continue to launch into them and we don't see ourselves. And God says, you are tearing this world apart and I cannot have it. And so in the ethical vision of Jesus, Jesus holds out this possibility. He says, look, there is a different way of life possible. You don't have to continue to nurse anger that is corrosive to your own soul and your heart. You don't have to keep speaking those words that are so destructive to your kids and to your wife. You can be free. You can break its power. Jesus is inviting us into a different way, and he's threatening us with the most severe kind of thing, this threat of of, of coming underneath ultimate judgment, which one way of understanding Jesus' threat of judgment and of ultimately the fire of hell is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, you know, the worst thing that God can do is hand you over to yourself and let you experience and let you fall into the the outcome of your own behavior. 
your own heart condition and just say, fine, I'll let you over into that state because it continues to grow and grow and grow. And you and I, we all know people who by the time they're 70 or 80 years old, they are mean-spirited and they are so miserable to be around. And it's because they've been given over to this, this anger that they never dealt with, this self-righteousness, this injured pride that always is erupting in these unkind words. And, and Jesus is saying, stop it. This is going to eat you up. It will kill you. It will destroy you. Well, you say, well, how? What's the alternative to anger? Well, notice in our text... You know, I suppose there's a variety of ways in which you and I can deal with our anger. You know, if you're like me and you're getting angry on Saturday nights, you really need to have your work done ahead of time and not still be working on a sermon on Saturday night, and you need to get to bed earlier. Some of you need more sleep, and that's why you're, so, you're just angry because you're not getting enough sleep. For the love of God, get more sleep. <laughs> you know, some of you, you are hangry. You know, you're... you're <laughs> Like there's this balance between dieting and, and, and becoming a more miserable person to be around. And you kind of got to work that out. Sometimes you just need to have a little bit more steady stream of food in your diet so your blood sugar doesn't get so low and so you don't launch into us so often. Some of you, yes, you need to take time as the old, you know, uh, Pop psychologist says, you know, and count to 10 when you're feeling angry. It may do some of you well to practice the disciplines of silence and meditation, and in some way, indirectly, that starts to deal with your own anger issues. I think there's a lot of different helpful things that we can do to deal with our anger, but none of those things are what Jesus tells us in our text. Notice what Jesus says in our text, the alternative to anger. The alternative to anger for Jesus is not counting to 10. It's not eating and sleeping more. It is not silence and meditation, though all of those things can be helpful. The alternative to anger is reconciliation. It's actually allowing your anger that you're feeling inside to have a creative expression that moves you toward the other and reconciliation. And notice how he puts it. He gives two illustrations of this. He says, and so, and so, in light of this threat of judgment for the anger that we feel, so what should you do? He says, so, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In the first century, some of the religious teachers made a hierarchy of responsibilities. And when you were faced with two competing responsibilities, they said the higher responsibility should demand your attention. And the higher responsibility would be toward God. And so if you were going down to offer your gift at the altar, and you remembered you had somebody against, some, something, somebody has something against you, uh, you wouldn't put your gift down at the altar and go reconcile. you say, no, I go offer my gift to God. I give God the priority, and then I will go reconcile with my brother. But Jesus says the way you offer true sacrifice, true worship to God is through your love and your reconciliation with your neighbor. 
You cannot treat people like crap and continue to worship Jesus on Sunday. You, you are called by Jesus to actually give priority to love and kindness and grace and mercy and reconciliation with your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your kids, somebody in this church. This has got to be one of the most ignored commands of Jesus in all of the Bible. People come again and again and again to worship, and yet they remain in a state of anger and bitterness towards somebody else in the same church family, and they have not once sought to do something about it. And some of you are in that place this morning, and you need to hear the word of Jesus to you this morning. Before you come and worship, put it down and go reconcile. Have a conversation. Speak face-to-face with somebody. Be kind, be gracious, be self-aware. And then Jesus says, he gives a second example. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. He says, so here's another scenario. You are facing a legal battle with someone. And you can settle outside of court and avoid paying tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees, as well as the, 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 the verdict that might be planted on your head as a result of going to trial. Jesus says, do everything you can ahead of time to settle the matter. And the application is clear. Do everything you can to resolve issues you have with someone with whom you've had a falling out before ultimately you stand before God. Jesus is calling us here to the radical work of reconciliation, the radical, very difficult and painful and long-term work of reconciliation. Jesus in these two examples, in these two illustrations are giving us simply illustrations. Jesus is well aware that it is rarely the case that you simply set your gift at the altar, go and you reconcile with somebody, and then in five minutes you're back again. Has anyone here ever tried to reconcile and had it work out like that? And I realize it doesn't all depend on you. And very often you seek to move toward others, and they reject you, they resist you, they don't want to hear it, they don't want to be around you. And it does take two to bring about reconciliation, but what Jesus is saying is take responsibility upon yourself. Some of us continue to take on the voice of a victim, always complaining about the injustices done to us by them. And and yes, you, you very often have been victimized, but nonetheless, Jesus calls us again and again to be people of reconciliation, and to move toward others. And someone says, but do you know, do you know how hard this is? I mean, Jesus, Jesus, do you have any idea what it is like to have somebody wrong you so badly? Do you know anything, Jesus, of what it's like to be so deeply wounded? And just have to bear it all in yourself and extend grace and forgiveness. Jesus, what do you know about that? 
Well, he knows a whole lot about that, doesn't he? This is the gospel. This is the very heart of Christianity. If Christianity is about one thing, it is first and foremost about reconciliation. It is about a God who in passionate and healing love enters into the creation that he loved that continually wrongs him and inflicts wounds upon God and God enters into humanity. And what does it look like for God to bear all of the wrongs of the world in his own very self and then to move toward us in love? It looks like the cross of Jesus where God in Christ bears in himself the full brunt and the full weight of God-forsakenness and human sin so that he might finally break its power and move toward us with grace and forgiveness. And so Jesus says, first and foremost, when I launch into my ethical vision, the very first act I call you to is the action of reconciliation. As we enter into our final movement in our worship service, I just want to invite you to bring to your mind, and maybe I don't even need to invite you to do this because it's been in your mind, it's the elephant in the room. It's what you've been thinking about throughout this entire sermon. It's the person who's upset with you because they think you wronged them, but you don't, they don't realize just how wrong you feel by them. And in this next movement, when we enter into the space of singing, I want to invite you to do um, one of two things. If this morning you are feeling like I need to move toward others, but I just don't have the power to do that, I have great news for you. You are not alone. Jesus knows all about everything you struggle with. He knows you deep down and he loves you still. And at the very end of this gospel, Matthew, Jesus says, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. And so I want to invite you in this space and in this time to call out to God and to ask that he would give you strength in your need to deal with whatever area of reconciliation, whatever area of brokenness, kind of that relational brokenness that has come to your mind over the last 40 minutes or so as I've been talking. Our great God and Father, we come to you now. And we are those, O oh Lord, who have wronged you. And you have come to us. You have come to us enfleshed in Jesus to bear our sin in yourself and to break its power and to pour out on us the ocean of your infinite love and grace and forgiveness. And this morning, even as angry people, we call out to you for mercy. And we say, Lord, we need you. We need you, O oh God, in our anger. God, come in and break the power of anger in our lives. Free us from its grip and its control. Enable us to be people of reconciliation and forgiveness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.